Welcome to Solving for B, your podcast for all things branding and marketing. In this episode, we discuss the branding considerations associated with mergers and acquisitions and offer a few tips to ensure that process goes smoothly. So settle in and enjoy the latest episode of Solving for B with Brand Extract. Hi, and welcome into the Solving for B. I'm your host, Chris Wilkes, and today we're talking about mergers and acquisitions and how your brand fits into that process. Uh, And to help me break down that topic, I'm joined by brand strategist, Elizabeth Tyndall. Hi, Chris. Chairman, Jonathan Fisher. Hey there, Chris. And President and CEO, Bo Bodie. What's up, Chris? (laughs) Thanks for stopping in today, guys. Uh, So mergers and acquisitions, uh, what are the key factors to consider when, when you're merging two brands? Where do you start? I think that, you know, you have to start with a solid evaluation of where the brands are in the marketplace. You have to look at what equity exists within those the systems that are there, and you have to evaluate the cost of changing those systems and measure that against your goals and the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve in that process. So I think it really starts with a solid evaluation, looking at where the brands are currently in their life cycles and what they've achieved and what their legacy is and what it means to change or evolve that legacy. Yeah, a key component of that, Chris, is the, is customer value um, or what the customers value, to be honest. Um, one of the things we found, in, especially in um, acquisitions and mergers and maybe uh, kind of broadening that to all audiences is, you know, the, your employees have an opinion of your brand. And in this case, you have two sets of employees and you have the same on the other side, two sets of customers. And each of those brands may, to Jonathan's point, have a different value in the marketplace. One may be more commoditized, one may be more premium, um, and reconciling that, you know, both internally and externally is going to be a critical component. And so with what Jonathan's talking about, a key part of that assessment is going to be the sentiment of those that are involved, um, which is something that in many cases, private equity, investment banking, um, those doing due diligence, leave um, in leadership in the different firms when they're doing due diligence. Sometimes um, they look at, but they overlook the the power of understanding how that works. Yeah. So how do you decide what to do with the, let's say it's a merger and acquisition between, or, excuse me, a merger between two brands. How do you decide what to do with those specific existing brands? I mean, what, what steps do you take? You know, what, where do you, you know, do you, do you combine both of them into something new? Do you keep one? Do you, you know, how do you, what's that process look like? Well, I mean, I think it starts with the corporate strategy and what, you know, the goal of the merger or acquisition was to begin with, you know, if it's one large company buying a smaller competitor because they want to expand into new markets, well, depending on, Um, going back to evaluating the brand equity and the value, they have to decide whether, you know, how strong that brand equity is and formulate a transition plan. If their corporate strategy is to be, you know, a branded house or a house of brands, they are going to have to manage that transition um, and really decide what's in the short-term and long-term best interest of the company to achieve its goals. Yeah. And I'd say, Chris, from the uh, standpoint of working with brands, and we've seen, you know, large enterprise brands that have acquired and part of their strategies to leave the brands because they're so local um, alone. And so, you know, company A has companies 
X, Y, Z, A, B, C, F, D, D, you know, all that. The challenge is there's, there's, a, there's a big challenge in managing that type of thing. If, in the case of two acquisitions, I mean, so Elizabeth's talking about you know, bringing in two companies together into one. Um, there are strategies where you might want to keep a brand in the marketplace because it's more of a product brand um, as opposed to, you know, two corporate brands coming together. If it is two corporate brands, <clears throat> you do have to look at, it's not always the biggest but you do have to look at which brand is going to represent them in the marketplace for where the market is going. Um, and I think that that's a key component to this, to, to what Elizabeth alluded to. In most cases, the larger brand has greater equity, but in some cases, a larger brand is buying a smaller brand so that it can move quicker or it's buying technology that's going to change its business. Um, in that case, I think companies are smart to look at you know, should we take on the newer brand so that we can grow in a different way as opposed to carrying this old legacy brand that has baggage with it? And so I think studying that, looking at that based on what Jonathan's talking about, Elizabeth has mentioned here, I think those are key things when you're thinking about, are we renaming? Are we keep keeping existing names? Are we going to keep multiple brands in the marketplace? And how are those things going to impact the customer, um, the customer view of the product and service? And will it degrade um, will there be some uh, will there be some cannibalization? Those kinds of things are all things to be considered. When you're rolling up these brands or you know modifying them or cannibalizing them, depending upon how your you know your approach or your strategy might be and what your end goals are, you know you have to be cognizant of the cost associated with transitioning those brands. You have to be cognizant of the time frame that's going to take to solidify and transition those brands to establish that new name and replace it into that consumer's mind. Mm -hmm. or that prospects you need to look at you know what opportunities you open up for your competitors when you make this transition um you, there's often a lot of doubt um you know is this store even operated by the same owner right, right. and so those considerations those messaging sets have to come into play mm -hmm. um as you sort of discuss what's the right approach yeah. Okay. I mean, it sounds like it all centers around Elizabeth. You mentioned it, the corporate strategy. Like, what's like? Start with what's the goal of this? Why are you doing this? And then all those decisions kind of dovetail off of that, right? Um, so that makes that makes total sense. Um, I'm curious. So, go, taking like a little bit of a step back, like if you are a a uh, a firm that that look that is looking to expand and you have decided that a merger uh, or excuse me, an acquisition is, is in your best interest. Um, are there any considerations that, you know, you need to look out for in other brands and in, in target brands or target firms um, as you're going through this process? Well, aside from their obvious, their sales and margin and footprint and strategic fit and product line or service, um, you want to think about cultural integration. That can be a huge conflict. These mergers and acquisitions we've seen, sort of the Hatfields and the McCoys get together. <laughs> you know, um, if you if you don't mind that expression a little bit, right. but um, so I think you want to you want to really recognize culture. Um, they're obviously always thinking about the executive leadership transitions, the roles, the restructuring. Those things are kind of obvious in that process. But I think something's often overlooked is really that culture. Hmm. And then I think really an analysis, which is often overlooked, of sort of that customer sentiment and hmm. loyalty factor. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times when you're merging these brands, you have a chance to decide what is best in class. 
um, you know, company A may be good at, you know, one, three, and five, and company B may be good at two, four, and six, and seven even, right? And so acquisitions sometimes take the the mindset on that we gobbled you, you now do it my way. Mm -hmm. Well, your way may not have been the best way in the marketplace. Um, So really deconstructing the different components of the merger from a financial, operational, technology, cultural, HR, uh, training, you know, process and trying to figure out what makes sense moving forward. Right. Um, really having that you know, objective view because a lot of times you see kind of divides with subjectivity of and, and loyalty of where they came from. Mm-hmm. And so trying to step out of that and really look at it holistically of what is going to be the best or combined organization moving forward. And it often takes a third party to help be neutral in that process. You know, we've done a lot of these where we've done thousands of voices of customer interviews and, and the customer has told us point blank, if they take Jim or Jane off this account, I'm done, you know, and you'll, you'll see $10 million worth of business disappear in less than six months. Um, so, you know, they won't always be completely honest with what they will tell the buyer or the individual that's leading and of course the individual that's being acquired may be fearful for their job and afraid they're going to be taken off the account so they might inflate uh, their relationships uh, with those accounts beyond where they necessarily are so i think having having that neutrality that anonymity to the process um, through the quantitative qualitative methodologies that we can use to support is something really key to kind of keep keep aware of and then I think the other thing, and I'll let, uh, let Elizabeth kind of address this that I think is important, is the level of communications that you have to go through during this process. Right. I mean, yeah, I think we've talked about there's so much uncertainty, um, but at the same time, not everything's figured out along the process. And sometimes you can't talk about it at certain stages of the process. But, um, you know, as soon as you can it's better to at least say what you know, um, you know, if it, better than being silent. And yeah. then once you start to un, start to figure out your plan, it's better to communicate it along the way and just keep people informed. Because when there's no communication at all, the void is filled with assumptions and misinformation that can cause all kinds of, you know, havoc down the road. Yeah, I think building on on that for from what Elizabeth said, I think one of the the key components of this. Look, it's easy to figure out. It's it's so easy to figure out the financials and the contracts, you know, and and that's that's like that's what a lot of organizations do. They say, do we financially fit to what Jonathan was talking about? But then on top of it, from a culture standpoint, the reason that, that these these mergers and acquisitions typically fail is because the cultures wouldn't align and. and and what I mean by that is, you know, yes, all the cl- clients look like they work. Yes, the service lines look like they're a perfect fit. Yes, the the culture may have the same stated values. Um, but, you know, in some some cases, an organization may be command and control. And another one, it may be, you know, very democratic. And understanding that, understanding how those two things are going to work together. And then to Elizabeth's point, communicating regularly on the fears that they have, because all these people are afraid. Customers are afraid. The the leadership's afraid. The rank and file are all afraid that, you know, this is going to fail. What's it going to do to me? How's it going to change my relationship with this organization? For customers, employees, and leadership, um, there's a lot of fear in that. And I think coming together with a solid strategy of not just how it's going to work, 
but how we're going to talk about it and how we're going to make it work together are critical. And uh, quite frankly, to Jonathan's point, a lot of organizations miss that um, when they're talking about the actual doing of the merger. Yeah, we've seen uh, attrition numbers double uh, over traditional averages during these mergers because they were slow to get their communications out. And and so the competitor is swooping in saying, hey, I know, you know, I know you've just been acquired, but if you don't know what your new executive comp and pay is going to be, well, here, let me offer you this. And they're, you know, I've seen it take six months, nine months, even after these mergers for these large corporations to get these benefit packages out. And their people are just getting cherry picked right and left. And the same thing for the customers. The customers may be uncertain about whether that branch or office is going to close down because, you know, part of the strategy was consolidation or whether their people or their reps are going to go away, or they think the pricing is going to go up because they know the company they're merging with is larger and has a, has a higher historical, higher price margin than who they're used to dealing with. And they're worried about their price sensitivities. So, you know, I, I philosophically always like to tell companies to expect to triple your normal level of communications <laughs> and budget for that as such, because often it's, they think they can just consolidate or put out a memo or say it once and, mm-hmm. and it's heard. Right. It's not the case. It, it requires, to Elizabeth's point, quite a bit more communication, both internally and externally. And I think that, you know, that's something that's often overlooked. Going back to your original question, Chris. Yeah. Well, th- two, two key points I want to bring up there. One, I think um, it speaks to the need for, for strategic planning, you know, as you're doing this, making sure you know what every step looks like, every phase. Jonathan, you mentioned, you know, preparing for for poachers essentially to come in and try to, to take your business or your employees um, and have a, have a plan and have a, have uh, some sort of um, defense against that. But also so one thing that I think the three of you all mentioned that I thought was really important is that the qualitative stuff, excuse me, the quantitative stuff seems to be kind of the, you know, what gets all the attention. Hey, let's run the numbers. Let's look and see, at, you know, what the, what the, um, you know, what we can expect financially from this sort of thing. But it's important to consider the qualitative piece of it as well, because there's that, that interpersonal communication that I think is, is important. Yeah, I think, I think it's getting more interesting because the, the quant qual explanation that you just had, there, there's a financial quantitative that's done typically, um, but then there is a lack of cultural quality, quantitative that's done. And I think that that's, just, that's some things that we've been successful with recently is really starting to define um, starting to find what the key drivers are and then being able to actually measure it. You know, what are the things that this organization is going to have based on their customer sentiment and the brand gap between their customer sentiment and their strategy? Again, well-defined strategy, well-defined understanding of what the customer wants. That brand gap that comes up can be critical in the success of the, of the, of the, the um, endeavor. And so how do you, how do you, look at that, both the financial output and quantitative, but then also the quantitative around what the customer sentiment is. Um, and even the employee sentiment, how did they feel about the organization and be able to see, okay, these are the 10 things I need to work on and they're measurable. I know that they're gonna have this much impact on brand value. That's the thing that's missing. The qualitative is great from a standpoint of giving you kind of color around how we can communicate, how these organizations feel, how they, the depth around the way they interact with the brands. Um, but again, quant on the culture side and quant on the customer experience side becomes a critical component that I think what um, firms that are guiding these kinds of uh, activities tend to do is they go all qualitative on the how do the customers feel um, and 
that can be measured just as easily as the financial side now um, with the with the different processes and methodologies that have been developed. Using, using the data science to build on what Bo is saying, um, we can take basically all of that guesswork out of what levers you need to be focused on most during this process. And we can bring that down to a percentage of like 27.5% versus another lever that's 19%. And we can do that across 80 to 100 actions and factors that are critical through this process. And furthermore, we can tie those percentages to things like the loyalty metric of likelihood to refer or likelihood to stay or likelihood to leave or likelihood to say something negative. And we can further tie that to the financial performances when we look at the CRM data for customer transactions. And we can say, you know, one margin of satisfaction incremental improvement is equal to X millions of dollars in new sales. And what that does is it allows for the executive team steering committees or the CEO or president, whoever that might be, to really focus their initiatives because you have to prioritize through these mergers all of the transactional changes that you're going to go through and what change management is going to happen first, second, third, or frankly, what you maybe need to ignore or not really worry about. And so showing the gap between what people are satisfied with and what is important and that relative weight in comparison in between is what's critical. And so essentially, our goal is to reduce the confusion reduce the things you're working on to reduce the 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 dis- distribution of, of fundings and only direct those funds to the things that are most valued by the customer throughout this process yeah i that i think it's so cool what what we can do with you know data science these days and because i mean rewind you know 15 20 years ago maybe this stuff wasn't as as um available you know all this this quantifiable data wasn't available back then or the processes just hadn't been developed. So that's, that's really cool. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the qualitative piece of it, because I think we've, we've talked a lot about the quantitative piece pretty thoroughly. Um, so how do you align two distinct cultures and combine them into one? Like how do you get buy-in from both brands, regardless of, of what the final output's going to be? How do you get buy-in from, you know, this company becoming this company or two companies becoming one. I mean, are there any tips, strategies, tactics? Well, I mean, so going back to what we said at the very beginning, it starts with an evaluation and a, a true understanding of each individual one and what the gaps are. But then it's also, you know, with the strategy, what is the vision, the mission, vision, and values for this new entity moving forward? And that can't really be decided in a vacuum with a couple of executives sitting in the room. They really need to engage key people throughout both organizations to come together and and everybody to have some input and have their opinions being heard so that they can all buy in um, to the to future direction of the new entity. Yeah, yeah get, getting... Oh, go ahead, Bo. No, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, just kind of getting ownership, not outside of the boardroom, right? You get ownership right. at, at some of the lower levels and that, that you know, gives you, um, gives you advocates throughout and... and yeah. Bo, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think that that's important, right? The inclusion of, of people's opinions and thoughts is, is key to this, right? It's something we've learned over the 15 years of building the organization was sometimes the process is great and we get good information. But just the fact that we ask, I mean, Jonathan learned this working with a large law firm, just the fact that we ask outside the organization sometimes could lead to new opportunities. Like, oh, wow, they care about us. And same thing internally. 
But then when the brand rolls out, they feel like they own a piece of it. And I think the second thing, Elizabeth, just to bring up a quick example, you know, with the qualitative. So when we go and study, when we went and studied this recent customer and they're in, the, in a software business, you know, we found out that the customer support was critical, right? And that the product quality was going to be, those are the two key drivers of the eight key drivers that we usually look at. Those two are like 70% of brand value. Well, that's great to know, right? And we start to get into what are the details, right? Timely updates, those kinds of things. But when Elizabeth actually talked to the customer and the employee, the customer was able to kind of qualify, oh, well, you know, they, they kind of, they push things down the road too much. I've been waiting for a while to get this done. But then when we talk to the in, internally, the qualitative and talk to the employee, yeah, of the 10,000 or 20,000 bugs that are launched whenever we launch a new product, I can only, by the time I get to 10,000, we're launching a new release. And so they just keep compounding. And so that we can see, what we can see from that, both of those viewpoints, is we can see the internal brand issue, the operational issue with the brand that's causing internal problems and challenges with their employees going to extraordinary effort, and then understand how that's transitioning to the external brand, the client's experience with the brand, and say, okay, here's where the issue is. You know, we may be releasing too early or with too many bugs, or we may not have enough people to fix them in time and development, or they may not have enough time to actually test the product. And so we can get to things that aren't just, here's the brand message, and here's how to communicate about it. We can get to things that, you know, what are critical actions that the, that the organization is is providing that it, that are causing brand degradation or brand trust. Um, and I think you know, Elizabeth's great at uncovering that in the qualitative because um, you can get into kind of depth on, okay, we know that support's an issue, but we know that product quality is an issue. What is it about product quality beyond kind of the key driver? What, what's driving that? Yeah, think about it as the business strategy, right? And the brand strategy. And those are intimately connected because the brand strategy is a promise. And if that promise is not kept operationally, that's the worst thing you can do is to market a broken promise, right? Because uh, that's what builds a brand is that consistency of that delivery of that promise over time. So one of the things I think that is important to identify, you know, through this, through the quantum qual process is also understanding who are the champions and who are the naysayers, right? There's always individuals culturally within an organization, be it they, whether they have the title or not, that everybody sort of turns to in this process and looks for answers from. And that can be, you know, homegrown. And you want to get those people on board with you. And you don't want those naysayers, which have heavy influence in the marketplace, internally or externally, just saying, ah, well, you know, don't worry about it. Don't pay attention to it. We're going to get sold again in two years or three right. years, right? We've seen these companies that just get flipped and flipped and flipped and flipped. Or it's the, oh, well, that's just a new CEO. They're going to bring, you know, Jim or Jane in or whoever it might be. And they're going to, they're going to last another year and a half because the board fires everybody after a year and a half. So don't bother, you know, trying to learn the new technology or adopt the new processes or whatever it might be. And we see that consistently in these organizations that are, you know, one that are being, you know, flipped and managed by different equity or investment partners or, are going through a lot of executive transitions over and over and over again, trying to get it right. You can't seem to get it right. And that's why they're being purchased in some cases because their devaluation is soft and somebody that understands how to fix them is truly going to come in and do turnaround work. So, you know, looking at, looking at that cultural uh, representation and where they sit and stand on that side of the fence, being an advocate or, you know, naysayer, if you will, is important to understand as part of your communication strategies. Yeah. 
And I, I guess, and to that point, you know, you, there, there's two, I guess there's dis, distinct approaches to, to the naysayers versus the people who are going to be your advocates. You know, you want to use those advocates to try to, 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 for lack of a better term, show those naysayers the light, right? You want to, and, and you want to, I guess, ease their fears in these transitions. Um, and I think a lot of that, and this is, this is kind of transitioning to our next question, is the role of internal communications. I think a lot of that has to do with what you're communicating, when you're communicating, how you're communicating. So with that as the backdrop, what is the role of internal communications in, you know, what, what, what part does internal communications play in the merger, in mergers and acquisitions? Well, I mean, I think internal communications is critical, um, you know, before, during, and after um, to manage the process and set expectations. It's um, like we talked, the more communication, the better, as much as you can and being as honest as you can in those communications. And also, um, like we mentioned earlier, being proactive in those communications. And so having it all outlined with what we need to communicate at different periods of time and arming the cascade or deciding the cascade of information so that we're developing, you know, managers toolkits with talking points and all that they need to know to communicate, you know, both downstream and upstream and having that two-way communication. So you have people throughout the organization um, imparting information, but also listening for key concerns and other things that need to be addressed in future communications. Yeah, when merging two brands, I mean, like we talked about earlier, everybody's scared. Everybody's everybody's afraid. Right? And They're it's messy. Sure what's gonna, and, and it's messy. You're right. I mean, absolutely right. It, it, who's going to be the leader? How is that going to affect me? What's going to happen? Um, how are we going to put our process together? What technologies are we going to use? I'm used to SAP, and now they use this other weird German software, and I don't know what to do. There's all that kind of craziness that goes on. And so the, to Elizabeth's point, and Jonathan alluded to it earlier, it, over-communicating with clarity is going to be key. And I think the other problem is one challenge that, that leadership has in these situations is either they are like one email a week you know, or a month, or they throw up all over their employees and they just blah, everything. And the problem with that is they, they, people just go, I, I'm, I'm already overwhelmed to Elizabeth's point. It's already messy. I don't know who I report to. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to affect comp and benefits and all that stuff that Jonathan was talking about. And then all of a sudden you get this massive email with 5,000 words that you're, you, it leaves you with more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. So being direct, being honest, being open and being frequent become critical um, for for leaders in these organizations to kind of calm their teams while they're making the hard decisions behind the scene because they still have to operate in the middle of this. I mean, having a good having a good structure for the platforms, you know, whether it's intranets or extranets, having a good strategy for the type of communication is this an is this an action that I need to do immediately? Is this something that's just nice to know? Right, levels of information. You know, you don't want to put, you know, because they'll, they'll still be putting out the baby announcements and the birthday announcements at the same time they're putting out the HSC announcements in there. They're shoving all those down the same pipe with the same labels, with the same, you know, uh, email templates or PowerPoint presentations. It's going to get lost. 
in that process. And so understanding what that framework, understanding what those plat- those platforms are, understanding you know how to use these sort of microsites within these communication systems to take feedback, to process that feedback, to have listening systems in place, um, to know what's brewing or percolating in the, in the employees' minds that might cause concern or even in the customer's mindset. You know, is is really helpful, and I know it's a bit tactical in that in the way I'm going here, but we've gotten down to this sort of deeper level of the conversation now. Yeah. So, yeah. well, and I think Jonathan, you bring up a good point. It's really all about the planning, right? And it's having a clear plan that outlines, you know, what communications are happening when through what channel and what the topics are, and not only just having the plan, but coordinating with kind of in and bringing consolidating all of the various communications that are happening throughout the organization. Because a lot of times, especially in these really big merger and acquisitions, all these different departments are working on their own key initiatives and ways to integrate, and they're all needing to communicate as well. So if you don't have kind of a task force or a lead that's managing all communications, it just adds to the chaos. Um, And not having a thoughtful plan that kind of outlines you might not know all the answers, but at least having that framework that Jonathan mentioned is crucial in just keeping everybody kind of with within the guardrails. Yeah. yeah. And, and you've got situations sometimes where, you know, we, we sort of are speaking as if it's two brands merging right now, but uh, we've done roll-ups with five brands. We've done roll-ups with 50 brands simultaneously that are being done, right? These acquisitions and rebranding processes. Um, so, and they can be of wildly different sizes. They can be in wildly different geographic locations with different cultural sensitivities, with language considerations. You're dealing with expats around the world who may be on and off different time zones, who may be using different, even different technology platforms because the system, the company they were with is even on the same technology platform that you've been using and that you're expecting them to port over and adopt to yours through these communications. So making sure those are neutral and work across all these, you know, all of these issues is, is really critical in looking at this, this process that Elizabeth is describing. Yeah. So, I mean, all in all, there's, there's a lot to consider. And I mean, I think we could go, I think we could, you know, have this be a two part or three part episode, but uh, I think that's a good stopping point guys. So I really, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for joining us today. I appreciate the time and insight. This was uh, extremely insightful for me and I hope everybody else out there found it insightful as well. So thanks guys. Thanks Chris. Chris. Yeah. Thanks Chris. That does it for this edition of Solving for B. If you enjoyed this episode, check out brandextract.com for more conversations on branding and marketing. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Solving for B with Brand Extract.